You're listening to the John DePietro Show. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, DePietro.com. It's Monday. There was quite a weekend. In some ways, I almost felt it was the weekend that was not because of, uh, I don't know about you, I didn't exactly uh, venture out too much Friday night into Saturday. And then suddenly, suddenly everyone seemed to emerge. Saturday was a good day to just watch what was going on with that balloon, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But I want to touch on this. Two uh, good stories in the New York Times. Um, first one is Kamala Harris trying to define her vice presidency. Even her allies are tired of waiting. Struggling to carve out a lane for herself might be the most consequential periods in the vice presidency. Let's face it, she is nowhere. And this is a uh, well-done story. Three top writers, Peter, Peter Baker, one of them. But they talk about that even some of the individuals that they, many times that they're going to do a, a very in-depth story, some of the people that are with, you know, the individual, they, they say, you may want to talk to this person or that person and so forth. And, and the fact of the matter is, even some Democrats who her own advisors referred reporters to for supportive quotes, confident, confided privately, they'd lost hope in her. Painful reality for the vice president in private conversations. Dozen of Democrats in the White House, Capitol Hill, around the nation, including some who helped put her on the party's 2020 ticket, said she has not risen to the challenge of proving herself as a future leader of the party, much less the country. There's even talk that she could be hurting the ticket for 2024. With Biden appearing all but certain to run again, the concern of Harris has shifted whether she'll be a political liability for the ticket. Given that Mr. Biden at 80, already the oldest president in American history, Republicans would most likely make Harris, who's 58, a prime attack line, arguing that a vote for Biden may be, in fact be a vote to put her in the Oval Office. So that's interesting that they would start to go after them that way. So far, she has not distinguished herself. I can't think of one thing she's done except stay out of the way and stand beside him at certain ceremonies. That is a very interesting. Uh, John Morgan, who's a former Florida finance chair for, uh, for former President Bill Clinton. 39% of Americans approve of Harris's job. Puts her below his approval rating, meaning Biden, over at around 42% for the past month. Harris allies say she was trapped in a damned if she doesn't, damned if she doesn't, does or doesn't conundrum. She's expected not to do anything to overshadow Biden. That's what being a first is all about. She's got to work every day, said Representative Jim Clyburn, to make sure she's not the last. Um, then they talk about chief of staff. Harris has a fresh opportunity to find her footing with the arrival of the new Congress. Because the Senate was split, Harris has cast 26 tie-breaking votes in a role as president of the Senate. While Democrats now hold a 51 to 49 edge, at least in some cases, Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona votes with them. Harris has a little more than breathing space. She's told her staff she wants to make at least three out-of-town trips a week in the coming year. No one feels the frustration of being underestimated more than Harris, but she makes a point of not exhibiting it publicly. In an interview with the New York Times, while she was in Japan, she tried to explain her own political identity. You got to know what you stand for, blah, blah, blah. What translates 
tangible terms, Les Claire, after her disastrous interview with Lester Holt in June of 2021, which she struggled to articulate the administration's strategy for securing the border. White House officials, including some of her own office, noted Shoba went into a bunker for about a year, avoiding many interviews out of what aid says was a fear of making mistakes and disappointing Biden. Listen, as I'll quote Donna Perry has said, she is, she's not a serious person. She wasn't a serious candidate. She was a creation. Members of Congress, Democrat strategists, and other major party figures say she has not made herself into a formidable leader. Two Democrats recall private conversations in which former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton lamented Ms. Harris could not win because she does not have the political instincts to clear a primary field. Nick Merrill, spokesman for Clinton, said she was strongly supportive of Harris, often spoke with her, shared experience being a woman in power. Uh, advisors and allies trace her challenges to her transition from the loyally prosecutor she used to be, Attorney General of California. Aides have encouraged her to liberate herself. Listen, she has not done anything with the job. And I'm going to go back to, I don't think it's it's Biden. I think it is her. You know, Hillary talking about political instincts. I think that's, that sounds about, that sounds about right. That sounds actually like a, an accurate depiction of her. Um, but here it is, you think about it, two years in and she's nowhere. Now, another story they mentioned. And this one's even a little more concerning. Balloon incident reveals more than spying. There's nothing new about superpowers spying on one another, even from balloons. But for pure gall, there was something different this time. News analysis, balloon incident, more than spying as competition with China intensifies. Maybe... It may be months before American intelligence agencies can compare the audacious flight of a Chinese surveillance balloon across the country to other intrusions, intrusions on America's national security system to determine how it ranks. After all, there's plenty of competition. There was the theft of the designs of the F-35 about 15 years ago, enabling the Chinese Air Force to develop its own look-alike stealth fighter with Chinese characteristics. There was the case of China's premier hacking team lifting the security clearance files for 22 million Americans from the barely secured computers of the Office of Personal Management in 2015. That combined with stolen medical files from Anthem and travel records from married hotels has helped the Chinese create a data blueprint of America's national security infrastructure. But for pure goal, something different about the balloon it became the subject of public fascination as it floated over nuclear silos in Montana. Then was spotted near Kansas City and then met its end when a Sinewider missile took it down of shallow waters of the coast of South Carolina. Not surprisingly, now it's coveted by military intelligence officials desperately want to reverse engineering whatever remains Coast Guard and Navy can recover. Yet beyond the made-for-cable news spectacle... The entire incident also speaks volumes about how little Washington and Beijing communicate. Almost 22 years after 
the collision of an American spy plane and a Chinese fighter about 70 miles off the coast. Island led both sides to vow they would improve their crisis management. We don't know what the intelligent yield was for the Chinese, but there's no doubt it was a gross violation of sovereignty, something China objects to. The United States flies over and sails to the islands China's built from sandbars in the South China Seas. And this made visceral the China challenge, to look up when you're out walking your dog and you see a Chinese spy balloon in the sky. <laughs> As it turns out, it's hardly the first time ours for the giant balloon met its deflated end. This is so well written. The Pentagon said there was another one in flight over South America. And it noted a long time ago, excuse me, it noted a long history of Chinese balloons flying over the United States, which the Pentagon somehow never wanted to talk about before until this incident forced it to. Instances of this kind of balloon activity has been observed previously over the past several years. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Patrick Ryder said, one senior official said many of those were in the Pacific, some near Hawaii. Um, General Ryder's admission raised the question of whether the United States failed to set a red line years ago about the balloon surveillance, essentially encouraging China to grow bolder and bolder. The fact they've come into airspace before is not comforting. We should have a, should have had a strategy earlier and should have signaled our limits much earlier. Of course, there's nothing new about superpowers spying on one another, even from balloons. President Eisenhower authorized surveillance of the Soviet Union by lofting cameras on balloons in the mid-50s, flying them, quote, over Soviet bloc countries under the guise of weather research. Um, it yielded more protests from the Kremlin than it did useful intelligence. With the advent of the first spy satellite, the balloons appeared to become obsolete. Now they're making a comeback. Because while spy satellites can see almost everything, balloons equipped with high-tech sensors hover over a site far longer and pick, can pick up radio, cellular, and other transmissions that cannot be detected from space. That's why the Montana sighting of the balloon was critical. In recent years, the NSA and U.S. Strategic Command, which oversee the American nuclear arsenal, have been remaking communication with nuclear weapon sites. That would be one, but only one of the natural targets for China's Ministry of State Security, oversees many of the national security hacks. The NSA also targets China. From the revelations of Ed Snowden, former contractor revealed many of the NC's operations a decade ago. The world learned the United States broke into the networks of the China Chinese telecommunications firm and also tracked the movement of Chinese leaders and other soldiers responsible for moving Chinese nuclear weapons. That is only a small sliver of American surveillance in China. Such activities add to China's argument. Everyone does it. Because they are largely hidden, save for the occasional revelation of a big hack, they've really become wrapped up in national politics, and that is challenging. Balloon incident came in a moment when Democrats and Republicans competing to just demonstrate who can be stronger on China. And that showed the new chairman of the House echoed the many Republicans who argued the balloon needed to come down sooner. 
called the shootdown, sort of like tackling the quarterback after the game is over. Satellite had completed its mission. Should never have been allowed to enter the United States. Should never have been allowed to complete its mission. Not yet clear what that mission was or whether the risk of letting it proceed truly outweighed the risk of taking the balloon down over land. It's only a small part of the aggressive spy versus spy moves of superpower competitors. The balloon drifted over the U.S. just days before, as we've talked about, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, supposed to make the first visit top American diplomat to Beijing. Canceled the trip, public slap. Many officials believe the president cannot be happy about. At a moment, Chinese leaders appear to be trying to stabilize their fast descending relationship with Washington. Hardly a life-threatening crisis, but the fact that Chinese officials realizing the balloon had been spotted did not call to work out a way to deal with it was revealing. That type of problem was supposed to be resolved after the 2001 collision of an EP-3 spy plane and a Chinese fighter that brought down both planes. President George W. Bush could not get Chinese leaders on the phone for days after the incident. Colin Powell also failed. Makes you wonder what might happen in a deeper crisis, he said later. Afterwards, hotlines were set up. Promises made about better communication. Clearly, those failed. When the balloon was shot down, China issued a statement saying for the United States to insist on using armed forces. Clearly, an excessive reaction. Few experts doubt the situation's been reversed. China would have used force. It has threatened to do so when it was believed outsiders were entering disputed waters, much less territory. It makes you wonder who was talking to whom in China. Clearly the greatest unforced error the Chinese have made in some time. But the balloon did come down. It is concerning far-reacher efforts, far, far more reaching efforts of what could happen. You're listening to The John DePietro Show. Propane Plus in Rhode Island for all your propane needs. Call them 401-885-4209. In Massachusetts, you can reach them at 508-252-3359. Propane Heating and Cooling, it's Propane Plus. Their team's been there three generations. They're available 24-7 for service and delivery, and they plan on serving you for a long time to come. They offer online billing ability to schedule a service delivery at the click of a button and remember all customers receive a free safety inspection on their equipment it's propane plus and remember with propane it's affordable sustainable equitable good for the environment and now it's renewable call propane plus today at 401-885-4209 in massachusetts call them at 508 508- 252-3359. They're very easy to navigate website. It's propaneplus.com. Propane Plus. Call them 401-885-4209. Folks, you are listening to the John DePietro Show weekdays. We start at 11. We go until 2. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, dipietro.com. It's time for our segment, Politics this week. Joining me right now, he is the managing editor, AnchorRising.com. It is our friend, Justin Katz. And Justin, I'd like to start off with something that you have talked about. We've touched on this 
And as pathetic as that state of the state speech by Governor McKee was, which it was, but as pathetic as that was, what we're learning more, even more now is, uh, well, two different things. Number one, the amount of money he said that families would save, it's, it's actually half of that, under $40, which is beyond pathetic. But on top of that, you know, the Republicans in the Senate, led by uh, State Senator Jessica De La Cruz, she's saying, like, let's be bold. Go to 5% instead of 6.85. And you've touched on, you've run the numbers in order to really make impact. It would have to be 3%. Um, so I'd like to hear your, let's start off and hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, we're talking about the sales tax. Uh, the um, we, when, I, when I was with the Rhode Island Center for Freedom and Prosperity, we, we used a modeling, an economic modeling tool. Uh, and it was actually a, a lot of fun. We actually had debates with other economic modeling tool teams that had more government-friendly uh, models. But what we, when we ran a number, what we found, we wanted to eliminate the sales tax altogether because it would bring business to the state. But if you don't eliminate it and you increase sales, it takes some of the hit out of what what the state has to adjust for. So you, cause you get more money back, even though it's at a lower rate. Uh, so we, we did the numbers and we found that the, the sweet spot was 3% as a sales tax that would give the best economic Im- impact, create a lot of business happening in Rhode Island while still replacing a lot of the money that was lost from the rate reduction because there were more people here. And so that was really what we, we ended up advocating, if you're not going to eliminate it, go to 3%. That's the number. 5%, I mean, there, there will probably be some effect of that. Uh, marginally, you know, it makes it a little bit less, uh, less expensive to shop in Rhode Island. But, you know, the one thing I've noticed is the Senate Republicans, they're, I mean, they're putting out materials, they've got brochures, they've, they're, they're making a thing of this, which is great. But I, I just don't understand why it would be so timid. I mean, they, they, right. they have to know they're not going to get it anyway. I mean, it's, they're, they're not ever, even when we were advocating for it, even members of the Chambers of Commerce were saying that threatening that much revenue was, was uh, I don't know, something like it could, was disastrous. I mean, even the business people were saying that. Wow. So you're not, you're not going to get a cut to 5%. Might as well go big and, and get it down to three, two, one. So at least you're getting people or none, because at least you're getting people's imaginations going, especially if you're, if you're, using that for promotions. I mean, we, we definitely found that starting with the eliminate the sales tax was much better for, for drawing attention to the issue as you know, it's, it's one thing to say, Oh, Senate Republicans say, don't go to 6.85, go to five. I mean, that's, that's a headline, I guess. But when you're saying eliminate the sales tax altogether, that's a much bigger story. So politically, I don't know why they would be so kind of try to be reasonable it's like it's like a problem rhode island republicans and conservatives have is we we kind of negotiate with ourselves before we even go out to the democrats and say say hey why don't we go to i don't know 5.32 it's just we should really be much much bolder but it's good that they're doing something anyway and i I want just the context of this for people to understand mass and connecticut are both you know six point something and and so the visual of being a five um, is, is certainly, you know, don't get me wrong. There's a benefit to it. What What is ludicrous is McKee at a 6.85. Mm, yeah. But Justin, I also, outside of just the visual of, okay, you know, Mass and Connecticut uh, are at six, so you're at five. But then you come down to, you know, what would it take? Would someone truly drive into the state to shop? There are people that shop. In New Hampshire, the people go up there on a weekend and a Saturday and they buy things because there's zero sales tax. So 
But I, I, I understand what I, I think I do. What you're saying is three would actually be a savings and three percent could get people uh, around our borders to really look at, boy, if I shop and buy this in Rhode Island, it's that much less. So it's it's worth it for me to, you know, drive the whatever it is, 15 miles from Foxborough, whatever, to go shop there because there will be a savings. Certainly, certainly. And I mean, the, the complexity of it, we, we looked at different states as well. And a sales tax is really an effect for your border counties in a state. So a big state, it doesn't much make sense, make, make sense to reduce your sales or rely on sales tax to, uh, to create economic development, because most of your state is not next to another state. So you're just shuffling money around within the state. So here we, our entire state is a border county. And so you've got people, they'll, they'll be passing through anyway, or they, they come here for some reason and they, I might as well shop. I mean, I know to get to Providence, I have to go through Massachusetts. So it's, Right. It's sort of, it's not a big deal if I realize I can say if I'm going to have, say, a thousand dollar purchase, I can save 30 bucks just by stopping on my way to Providence in Massachusetts, you know, so it's it, that sort of thing really starts to add up. And so if you if you if you get the, the best for economic development is just eliminate it altogether, because then people are right. coming to the state and you build up the 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 economy here and it becomes a headline thing like people know even if you're not calculating well how much will i save if i go to Massachusetts uh, to new hampshire you know zero you know it's no sales tax at all it's just a big headline but if you're not going to do that if you're worried about the budget impact three percent was what we found that that you just that return you're getting from from going over from from letting people come here spend their money and taking a little bit of it is takes away most of the cost of of actually implementing the the program, which is, uh, it, to me, it, it seemed like a no-brainer, of course. I was spending hours and hours looking at the numbers, so I can understand why others wouldn't necessarily see that. But it's it's really, the idea is to make people want to come to Rhode Island. And what, what we're seeing instead is what we saw, I, I think it was around 2012, I might be mistaken, where the, we were the bottom of every business rank yes. on the charts and there, the, both chambers of the legislature had met multiple different meetings and hearings and so on and and it became very clear what they were doing when they were talking about economic development and reforming taxes they were trying to game the system and we saw this throughout the last 20 years is well if we adjust this then the tax foundation will like it it doesn't make much difference to people but it, but it will make us look better on paper and that's what you kind of get when you talk about these I don't know, just a, a percent or two change. It doesn't really make a huge difference to people. Uh, it doesn't really affect much, but it might, you can say we're the lowest in New England, except New Hampshire. You know, that might, I mean, that, that has a, a benefit on the, the rankings, but that's not the focus we should have. The focus we should have is Rhode Islanders and what is good for them and their, their pocketbooks and their businesses. I know that in Massachusetts, Justin Katz, when they have their, I think in the summertime, they do a tax-free weekend Businesses say it's the biggest, busiest weekend they have of the year. They even have to hire extra staff. It is phenomenal. One last point on this. It's, it's interesting, but you're right. In, in uh, coming out of the pandemic with all that extra money, that really would have been a strategic move to go to 0%. Massachusetts would then have New Hampshire at 0%. We'd be at 0%. But the problem at the state house is they don't think business friendly. They don't think what would be good for businesses. They just look at, well, wait a minute. We... You know, we at the state house on Smith Hill, we need all this money flowing in. They don't think what's the benefit to the state. They simply, to me, regard this as what what is the benefit, you know, for the, all the, the state workers and all the money they want to flow in. 
that's the way they would, you know, they look at it. But you would get various companies, uh, different businesses, certainly um, retailers that would would open here uh, instead of being mass in Connecticut. If you would zero percent, simply because they'd be selling so much volume of uh, a business and it would make a, a huge, huge difference, I believe. Folks, quick break. Much more head politics this week. Justin Katz, managing editor, Incorising.com, right here on the John DePietro Show. Next time you have an emergency, think AtMed Urgent Care. Two locations, 1524 Atwood Avenue, Johnston. That's right in the Atwood medical center and also 5750 post road east greenwich right across from felicia's at med urgent care when you have an emergency they specialize ambulatory medicine they provide immunization school and sports physicals at at med urgent care they provide comprehensive outpatient health care to individuals families they're on duty at all times they're open seven days a week walk-in routine urgent care minor surgical now, if you're in a car accident, go to AtMed Urgent Care. Avoid the long wait at the emergency rooms. They also do adult vaccinations, laboratory testing. AtMed Urgent Care, when it's an emergency, 1524 Atwood Avenue in Johnston. That's right, in the Atwood Medical Center. And also 5750 Post Road, East Greenwich, online at admedurgentcare.net. Our segment is politics this week. With me is Justin Katz, managing editor at AnchorRising.com. Well, Justin, now over the course of the weekend, we had this, that, and that was a, a very unusual cold snap. Uh, literally went below zero for a period of about 48 hours. It was almost like getting a big snowstorm to come in. And then sure enough, the, uh, the Cranston Street Armory, the, the McKee people, for whatever reason, have decided that's the spot. When I hang the hat on, that's where the homeless should go. That's the warming station. And, and there were high winds associated with this cold front that came through. So it broke out a bunch of the windows. So then obviously, you know, you have open windows and you have below zero temperatures. And so um, oh, once again, it, that becomes a big story over the course of the weekend. And it's to me, it's like the McKee people just cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, well, I think to a big extent, this is this is what you get when the the, the approach of the governor is just let's get this issue out of the headlines. Right. And that's really what it was. It was, it wasn't, here's our thoroughly considered plan for the homeless. This is okay. Uh, yeah. The armory, shove them in there. Okay. We're done. See, we did it. We got it. The two things that really strike me about this, this whole episode is first of all, the, the lack of curiosity. I mean, I, maybe I'm a little more curious because of my years as a carpenter, but windows don't tend to just break from wind. It's, it's usually not how it happens. Something right. strikes them. Or, uh, so I, I kind of was disappointed in the news media's lack of curiosity about how did that actually happen as a matter of did a, did a branch fly off a tree and break the window or uh, you just don't if and if it's that poorly constructed, then it's probably not <clears throat> probably not a safe place for people to be staying anyway. So that was the first thing I noticed. And the second thing was what we didn't hear. Now to hear the activists over the past year talk about homelessness you'd think they were everywhere they were people would die if there was a cold snap that's right so it's almost we did not hear stories of people tripping over frozen corpses that's one thing we did not hear so this the the biggest controversy is that the some windows made it cold in the cranston armory for the homeless 
well, maybe it's not that big a problem if that's the worst that happened in a like a, a kind of almost, I don't know if it was historic, but in a, an unusual 48-hour cold snap, that's a very dangerous situation. And yet all these homeless we supposedly have throughout the state survived it as that's far right. as we know. So what's, what's going on with that story? I, I'm not quite sure. What happened to all those 500 people that they... You know, exactly. claimed were just out there, and uh, that is exactly right. If there was ever a weekend uh, that if someone was outside and we had all these homeless people would have froze to death, it was this past weekend, and it didn't. Um, I think you're right. Also, uh, the nature of which how the media even approached it, and as if that was like the biggest concern. You had, you know, businesses with pipes freezing. You had people, regular homeowners with pipes freezing and problems. But it still seemingly finds its way back to the homeless, the, the transistoring armory. Now, Justin Katz, also last week, Governor McKee had, uh, you know, the big press briefing. And once again, he is going after, there's no other way to describe it. He's going after the legal gun owner. Uh, a lot of pomp and circumstance. They have the different political leaders up there, moms to be in action and so forth. And once again, you know, the governor seems to want to be able to be this champion that he wants to restrict certain types of weapons. Um, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I don't, I, for the most part, my thought is kind of, you know, whatever. Uh, McKee, he can't, he, there's no real Republican challenge in the state. He knows that. So he wants to, he has to, he has to avoid a primary because his own party doesn't like him very much. So this is it. He's just kind of like rubber stamp Democrat guy. Uh, what, and I think what we learn here and from a sy systemic problem is the real problem you have when you're, you're so dominated by a single party because national issues that are of concern to those voters, that's what's governing our state. There's no, Rhode Island does not need to make stronger gun laws. We have strong gun laws, we, too strong in my view. And we, we haven't had these incidents you've got in other states. But every time there's an incident anywhere across this country of where, I don't know where, where, what we're up to now, 350 million people, um, one of the largest countries in the, on the planet, whenever there's an incident, oh, we've got to stop assault rifles in Rhode Island. Yeah, well, I don't know. Do we really? Is that really where your attention needs to be? focused and what strikes me is what where we do have a problem is gang violence and that's a growing problem and it's a problem yeah. that you've got the the capital city with a actual a ordinance on the books a policy for the police that makes it difficult for them to track gangs and stop them that's right if you wanted to have an effect on actual gun violence that's what you would do uh and it's it's just shows you how turned around they get i mean that, that's one of the reasons the reason that they take the pro-gang approach is because they think it's racist to crack down on on the gang members who tend to be minorities but in if in effect you're then dooming minorities to being killed by the gangs which is pretty racist in my view but it just gets turned around because they're focused on these national politics and this progressive ideology and they're not thinking and that's one of the continues to be one of the biggest disappointments with McKee is he's just he just he's I had hoped he would maybe try to think for himself as somebody who had some involvement with business and was a mayor you know think in practical terms of what people actually need and the problems they actually face but instead we get just democrat talking points for national issues which is really a disappointment and poorly serves Rhode Islanders yeah it was kind of comical in the same week that we learned that a student in Mount Pleasant is being threatened with cartel violence. And then you had the guy that was involved with a, a shooting. Uh, he claimed self-defense against the landlord. He had a ghost gun in, in Providence. As Justin, as someone that covers all this 
violence in Providence and so on. None of them are legal gun owners. And all McKee seems zeroed focused on is just uh, just absolutely going after, you know, this legislation that will all be challenged. Um, it's really just sticking a, you know, poking a finger in the eye to the legal gun owner. But none of that, none of the violence that you're seeing out there is being done by legal gun owners. And if anything now, you know, when you have a, a high school student being threatened with cartel violence and some of the gang violence, as you said, and that's what they did was disband the gang unit. They're, they're making it easier, not um, uh, making it easier for a lot of the illegal and the, the violence from some of the gangs and so forth, as opposed to people being able to protect themselves. Folks, quick break. Much more ahead. Politics this week. Justin Katz, managing editor, anchorising.com, right here on the John DePietro Show. The Coesed Inn, 226 Coesed Avenue in West Warwick, Rhode Island tradition since 1977. Delicious food, great atmosphere, whether it's lunch or dinner or drinks in the lounge. They can also accommodate large groups. A great meal, a feast is waiting for you at the Coesed Inn. Stop it and see them all year round. 226 Coesed Avenue in West Warwick. They're waiting for you at the Coesed Inn. Our segment is politics this week. With me is Justin Katz, managing editor, anchorrising.com. Justin, I uh, view this as kind of like a, a classic how Rhode Island operates, how the state house operates. I'm talking about Charlene Lima was all up in arms because she's being removed as the majority leader from Speaker Sakachi. Instead, he names uh, Ray Hull, who's a nice enough guy, police officer, and but what uh, really went over the top is was to me was Lima. And it's one of those things that sometimes you don't need to see behind the curtain. But she started to vent on Twitter everything that was going on. And she was trying to say because she was independent and so forth. But some of the things she went into was they were going to revoke her parking space. She wasn't going to be able to use the same uh, restroom at the state house. She was concerned they were going to remove her desk where it was. Then she was even getting updates. I still have bathroom privileges. It's almost like a parody. I still have my <laughs> desk. But her par- parking spot was actually moved to another assigned parking spot. So to me, it's one of those um, – it's a political gaffe, which is people make a mistake when they tell the truth. <laughs> but of all the problems that families have in businesses and, – and to me, this gives you insight as what's considered a priority to Representative Charlene Lima. Well, it's it's not just her. To be fair, this is kind of right. the culture up there, and it's it, it's one of those things when you think about it. It's like you we elect representatives, they go there and they vote for all this terrible stuff. Why? For a better parking space. I mean, it's it's literally the way it goes. They and it it's, it's it goes to show how everywhere marginally throughout our entire state government they, is they just get your get by their vote. So they give them the you know they give them the legislative grants they give them a parking space they get a better better office with more bold gold lettering on a door that they can you know clean off when when nobody's looking with their sleeves they can they can do all this stuff and gradually that's what what buys votes is it is it is sad i mean lima does go up against leadership sometimes and surprisingly yes. you know, surprisingly good policies uh, from time to time but 
this stuff is important to them. And I think that ought to be, I think Rhode Islanders laugh it off. And to my experience, almost there's, there's something they find endearing. Oh, that's how it is here. This is our state. I mean, it's, and it's just, no, this is, this is not a healthy thing. You ought to have legislators saying, Oh, lost my parking spot. Big deal. You know, I'm going to fight for Rhode Islanders, but instead you get this, this kind of, I don't know, griping and as if, as if, you know, I, I, I have that parking space by right. And it's just the, the, the length of time they spend on this sort of thing. And then when you watch over a, a couple of decades, in a very rare circumstance where somebody in committee does something that the leadership didn't want to happen, they just rewrite the rules and undo it. Nobody cares about that. We care about our right. moving our parking space, not the fact that we can they cannot do their job as legislators because the rules don't apply when they don't want them to apply. Yeah, I, I just found it embarrassing because it, to me it shows it's all about the perks. Uh, even if she does think that, uh, to me it just shows the type of judgment that someone would – this is an elected person. And prior to last week was you know deputy to the speaker. But, but you, you, to, the fact that judgment to actually put that, uh, actually write that out and then post it and not realize just how you know r- ridiculous it is. Um, I think it gives a little bit of insight uh, into uh, Charlene Lima. I, I'm not sure how much power that job has, but to me, it's so much of that. It's all about the perks. It's the plate. It's they get to, you know, they get a good table at the Capitol Grill. <laughs> they kind of feel that they're like an inside class. Um, yeah. It's amazing how they win a lot of those people over and feel, you know, kind of corral them and get them to go along how easily they're bought off by just, uh, and here's what we're going to do. You're going to get your desk over here and you're going to get a certain parking spot. And, and the person just uh, lights up about it. Now, Justin Katz last week, Ted Nisi, I thought it was a very well put together piece, but he was in Washington, DC and he had a big sit down uh, with commerce secretary Raimondo. And uh, he made a lot of news out of it. A lot of it came out. I just think the way it was put together was, you know, it was a well put together piece, but I'd like to hear um, your your thoughts on just some of the things that came out of the interview with former governor, now Commerce Secretary Raimondo. Well, I think I mean, the, the, the top line thing that struck me, I thought back to during covid and remembering that WPRI was for for what? I don't know, a couple of decades was the kind of the upstart. It had a younger, fresher feel than say WJR uh, yep. channel 10. And they, they were more technologically savvy and they seemed to give a voice to people who weren't as, you know, quite insiders, but during COVID, it seemed like that changed. I remember Ted Nisi got a big, in- or I, I don't know if it was Ted, one of them got the, the, the big interview with Raimondo about COVID and all this stuff. Uh, and it changed. And if, to me, in my view, it's become a much more insider network. And I think the, the first thing that struck me is kind of, this is the benefit of that, right? When you, when you, Get go along to get along with uh, a politician like Raimondo, you you get those invitations when she moves up. Oh, come on down! We'll walk down this hall full of flags. You can look out the window, and we'll I'll give you the tour, and you'll feel very important. Uh, and so, I, I, to me, that was it's kind of the hidden payoff for going along with the insiders in Rhode Island for the for the politicians you think might go somewhere. And I, so, I think that that's a big problem. But other, other than that, I think content wise, I mean, the headline obviously was that she's not interested in Senate, which I, I think most people she's not a legislative type. She wants to right. run. things, And uh, so that's that's probably I mean, that, that's news. A lot of people, it almost became conventional. People were like, oh, she's just waiting for Jack. Reed. Right. 
that that certainly made news. By the way, I also, uh, in some way, kind of, she knows who she is. She knows how she likes to operate. But to just kind of get that off the table, that, she, you know, when Senator Reid decides to leave, that that's not something she's going to go with. I, I kind of like when, like, because I'm, I was hearing that as if that was common knowledge, like it was acceptable. Right. Mm-hmm. And I you never know. saw that she doesn't strike me as that type but go right ahead oh yeah no absolutely i mean she she's she's in some ways more ambitious to that than yes. that and she she knows her strengths uh, and she's willing to take a risk i mean it's it's not nothing to say to say no categorically to being a u.s senator i mean it's right. it's a pretty high income you're you get to do pretty much whatever you yeah, want you know over the news. exactly it's it's you're in the you're in the whatever not, i don't know the textbook but you're on some list somewhere that's important to people uh so it, it's not nothing to say you know what i'm rolling that out but, you know, that's kind of the way she is. And so she I mean, she's always had a lot of that admirable qualities in that respect. Yeah. She she's she's ambitious. She's successful. She thinks she has some reasonable ideas and she she pulls teams together and she can from time to time get things done. Um, so she she's a, certainly a, a competent politician and administrator by those measures. Um, and I think that's that's what we're seeing here is that and I think that's what kind of her brand is yeah i'm not i'm taking that off the table that's not me i'm not right. going to play these games where everybody speculates for three years of course you know if the cynic in me wonders if she's already got the traded that chip for something some senator reed said something or, or some other politician who's eyeing that seat said you know maybe cicilline wants to move over to the senate and i would think cicilline would be the one <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and he's saying he's saying hey gina you take this off the table and I'll help you in this way. So that, that may be part of it in the background, but it's certainly on brand for her to say, yeah, that's just not me. I'm, I'm not that type of person. I'm moving on to the things I want to get done. And you know, that it's a good message. Uh, and I, I wish more politicians had that message. Of course, I wish, wish she advocated for better policies and, and so on. But um, yeah, I agree that that is newsworthy and it's, it's good branding for her. And intimating. I mean, this is someone now, um, she is just such a, a different type of uh, leader than than McKee, and we're going to get to what she the one regret she had. But but I think Justin also she came off very confident. This is she is the you know Commerce Secretary. She's in the cabinet. To me, there's there's no other way to interpret that other than Gina Raimondo being very confident in in her role, and there's no reason not to. But that she she eyes the big run someday and we're going to get to another local person that is also uh, trying to do that but but um i i I think the only way to walk away from that is it may not be this time but next time around she is without question going to make some kind of a a run for president but she's very calculating not doing something just off the cuff and is going to make a run but her big regret you think about it justin there's various things she could have answered with that uh you know i I have no regrets or, you know, I just miss the people or uh, just the fact that I miss some of my family and friends. But no, she zeroed in on the Providence schools. So look at that. I take that also as a jab at McKee. The first thing he did was sign the teacher's contract that they wanted um, for her to once again throw focus to the Providence schools. And keep in mind, she's very tight with Smiley. I think that's a way to channel that. He has her support. She is backing up him that that's a big thing. And I think it also, I think it kind of throws a little, as they call it, shade on Governor McKee that he has really dropped the ball with the Providence schools. Oh, well, well, certainly all of those things on the political front. But, I, you know, I could, given her, I mean, her 
she is driven to do stuff. She seems to enjoy doing yes. stuff. And so I, I could really see her thinking of a particular, I don't know what it was, but you can imagine a scene where they're making the decision. What do we do? Do we go after the union here? Do we do this? Do we do that? And she's actually you know, in the boardroom and they make the decision not to be more aggressive in some way. Uh, and now, and it turned out they, they should have and because the union didn't play ball and so on and so forth. So right. I could see her regretting not doing that and actually seeing that as a because because let's face it the providence schools are a massive yes. massive failure for our entire political yes. class our state and lamentably almost almost you know historically terrible for people and a historical just a disproof of everything our government might try to do and so it would have to weigh on politicians in more than a cynical way if they have any conscience at all that they didn't do more to solve that problem and so uh we'll see but if she's going to run for president which I, I agree i mean she's looking at this field of of democrats that really hollowed out during the obama years because the party became so radical so there's not a whole lot of up-and-coming talent which is why the biden administration is full of so many clowns uh she's got to be thinking okay i have a real shot for president in this party uh and so uh, she's going to have to figure out a way to to reconcile that conscience about what she didn't fix in the Providence schools with right. the fact that she needs teachers unions to win anything in a Democrat party these days. Yeah, no, that's what I, I think was so significant. Now, speaking of running for president, uh, we have another Rhode Islander who has uh, made an announcement last week. It hasn't fully penetrated, I'd say, on the national level simply because it still seems to be local. Um, and in full true transparency, I've known Steve Laffey my entire life. I only bought the best for Steve. I'll try to be objective in talking about this, but um, and I think I can in some way as far as just what it would take to run a credible campaign. But he, Steve Laffey, former mayor of Cranston, also ran against Lee Chafee, that famous 2006 Senate primary. It was really the Republican Party ground game that came in and put Chafee over the top. But Justin, I'd like to hear your thoughts that he's announced that he's now going to run for president. Well, I, uh, when you say it hasn't really penetrated the national news, I wonder what, why would it? You know, I mean, it's sort of just an, the country's full of mayors, full of wealthy people. You know, there's, right. it's no, there's no reason he would necessarily stand out on the, the national stage as a credible candidate for president. And he's, he's not really at this point. I mean, he has plenty of time if he if he really yeah. pulls the and he, he's been successful and he's had a lot of good ideas and a lot of great energy. He could pull together some plan to be, to get that spotlight, but it's, it's hard to see from this vantage point. So I, I could see then even a highly objective national news saying, okay, wh who is this guy? What is this about? And he has to kind of prove his, his chops a bit. And in that regard, I mean, he, he has some of the business savvy, the financial knowledge, but you know, like, Donald Trump swept in, but he had been on television for more than a decade. He's been yes. a, a kind of a cultural icon for, for decades. So th that's kind of what it took for that outsider to, to make it big. And so when, when somebody like Steve Laffey says, I'm running for president, eh, okay. You know, and it, to me, what it, it highlights is, you know, if, if you balance him against, say, Ashley Kalis, he would have, he would have had a real shot for governor of Rhode Island, yeah. I think. And if yeah. he had if, if he had come back, he would have been hit with some of the same. Oh, he left and now he's back, but it wouldn't have had any purchase with him because he's from right. here. He's a Rhode, we still think of him as a Rhode Islander. You can't right. go away. You're, once you move here, you're never permanent. But once you go away, you're, you're still a member of the family, so to speak. But so he would have had a real shot. But so I'm not sure 
if he really even wants to jump into the, the ring. I mean, that would have been a big strategic move if he had run for governor, been governor, and as Raimondo's showing, that is a path to that Washington area, is that Washington mentality if you play it right and that, that, that ladder over there. So he, that would have been a much more plausible path, spend a, a term or two as governor and then jump to the national stage. But uh, so it makes me wonder what he's actually trying to get out of it. I mean, it's almost yeah, if he wants attention for something, whether it's an issue or just self-promotion or vanity. But uh, so I, I hope he I hope he figures out something. It'll be exciting if he comes up with a successful plan. But I, I'm a little skeptical at this point. Well, he's run for mayor and won, and then he ran for Senate, lost out in Colorado. He ran for governor and lost. He ran for Congress and lost. So the one office that he has not run for is president. But it's my <laughs> understanding, you know, that he's thinking he's going to move to New Hampshire I think the, the first thing, couple things that comes into play is, is the big, first big question is, can he mount a credible campaign in New Hampshire? Can he get to 5%? Uh, if you're going to live there, he is very good with retail politics. He's excellent out on the stump and talking to people. So to me, several questions. It's, it's not, can he beat Trump? Can he mount a credible New Hampshire campaign? Can he get to 5%? Can he get to 10%? Um, I, you know, Trump is going to keep a lot of people out. He's definitely, he's not a Trump person. So some kind of an alternative, I, I think you have different benchmarks. If you feel you can run a, a credible race and you feel you can get to 5%, feel you get to 10%, what are those deadlines? Does he feel he can get to 5% by Labor Day? Can he get to 10% by, uh, November 1st, somewhere in there? I mean, there's definitely some measurable, but he has time. He has money. He certainly has made money. Move up there. Kind of plant your flag there. Um, I, I, there's so many different wild cards with this, Justin, just because someone who's getting a lot of attention is the current governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu. Huge piece in the, on him in the Boston Globe. And a question with him is, does he want to be king or does he want to be a kingmaker? Does he want everyone to go through him? So um, it, it, it's not easy, but the strategy of you pick one state and then if you could get some money, uh, get some presents, start to – I think that's the biggest thing. Can he run a credible campaign? Can he find some issues that really resonate with people? And uh, But the ability to move there, live there, campaign there, spend some of his own money, um, I, I think it's, you know, it's a strategy worth you know, watching. I want to give you the final thought on it. Well, certainly. Um, it, but, you know, you have to view these things at multi levels. Like, so, but yeah. if, and if you zoom out, just the, the, the nationwide gut check is this a credible campaign? It, it's a little bit harder case to make. I mean, you, you, there is definitely a path if he plays his cards right to get up and to be talked about on a national stage. Right. Getting over that line, it, it just seems, eh, you know, it's possible, but it would be kind of a historic run, which, hey, go for it, you know, if you've got the time and the money to do it. But so I think that's that's my where my question comes in is he he can get himself attention, especially if he plays his cards right here. And by the time the election rolls around, he could be getting, you know, national talk shows, you know, that kind of thing. But the, why? If you're not going to necessarily, are there particular policies he's going to want to try to pressure into being? Is this just a way to get into, make that deal with the ultimate, whoever ultimately gets it to get some kind of office in state, in, in federal government? That I don't know. But but as, as a run, I think there, there's got to be some other motivation, or at least I would expect there to be. That, but that's the way, and I think you do that. That's how I view it. The, I think the first right. question needs to be answered. 
Can he, you know, can he get some people to put Laffy signs in their lawns? Can he draw more than, you know, 25 people if he's going to speak at a, a lodge somewhere or something like that? I think, you know, I, I, I think we'll we'll know by Labor Day whether or not if uh, <laughs> what he's kind of selling, so to speak, is resonating right. or if this is just, you know, another way to get attention. But if you're going to do it. Uh, Iowa would be tough, but there are people that have moved to Iowa in the past and didn't pan mm-hmm. out. Um, you know, l- looking at the field, there, Trump will scare a lot of people away. But then when you get past Trump, Mike Pence, is is he in the same lane as Laffey? Nikki Haley, she's really from the South. Uh, Mike Pompeo certainly is uh, going to make a big run. Uh, I think the strategy of Pickett Estate, he, he went to school in Maine. Uh, at Bowdoin. He also went to Harvard Business School. So, I mean, on a weekend, you could maybe convince some Rhode Islanders drive up there on a Saturday in the summertime and do mm-hmm. some campaigning with them Saturday or Sunday. So it's close enough. Um, I think we'll we'll have to wait and, and see what happens by Memorial Day and what happens by Labor Day. Folks, right. again, uh, our segment is Politics This Week. He is the managing editor at com. It's Justin Katz. Justin, it's always great to talk to you. We'll talk to you again. Thank you, John. My pleasure. For over 125 years, Ameriprise Financial has provided advice for clients' unique goals, help millions of Americans retire on their terms. Now, as we're at the end of the year, beginning of a new year, why not take advantage of our free consultation? Call Tom Bryan today, Ameriprise Financial, 401-434-1510. Offices located 400 Massasoit Avenue in East Providence put the strength of a leader in retirement planning. To work for for you through a personal one-on-one relationship, call Tom Bryan today, Ameriprise Financial Advisors, 401-434-1510. Get solid advice. Get a plan, whether it's for yourself, you and a spouse, maybe your children or grandchildren. Take advantage of this free consultation, Ameriprise Financial, 401-434-1510. Call right now, 401 401- 434-1510, Tom Bryan, Ameriprise Financial Advisors. To the John DePietro Show, it's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at our website, dePietro.com. Remember, weekdays, 11 to 2, but visit the website, dePietro.com. That's the best way to reach me. There's a direct link, contact John. We also have all our sponsors right there. We have unique, original reporting, stories, videos. Also, all our links to social media, whether it's Facebook, when we do Facebook Live or YouTube or Twitter. It's all right there at the website, dePietro.com. And then remember, once you're there, you can also visit the shop. We have great gifts that you can get. It's a happening. All links to the show. Plus, if you ever miss any part of the show, it's all right there under radio show right there folks it all starts by logging on at dipetro.com and on the left hand side you can always listen live again all our links everything begins and ends right there at the website dipetro.com it's getting cold already this winter keep your family your employees warm with matthews oil company call them today 401 941-7500 Matthews Oil Company 24-hour emergency service for over four generations they make it easy to keep your home comfortable and safe 
trusted oil delivery. Call Matthews Oil Company today, 401-942-7500. You can find them online, matthewsoil.com. Matthews Oil, Premier Dealer, Rhode Island, delivering the highest quality heating fuels. At Matthews Oil, they take pride providing reliable, affordable service for you and your family. Celebrating 90 years of service, call them now. It's going to be a cold winter. Get that tank filled. Call Matthews Oil Company today, 401-942-7500. In an emergency, they offer 24-hour emergency service. Matthews Oil Company, 401-942-7500.